Hello, and welcome to Independent Truths, a show that brings a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing society today. I'm Dr. Scott Atlas. Today's guest is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Professor of Health Policy and Economics at Stanford University School of Medicine. Jay and I have an illuminating conversation about his experience as a voice of reason during the COVID pandemic, especially how we move forward as a society to restore the trust and ethics in science and public health in light of the harms and censorship that we have experienced. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Hello, Jay. Welcome. And uh, great to see you. Great to have you here with me. Thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure, Scott, as always. Great. Uh, So as everyone knows, uh, you are one of the most sane, rational voices about the pandemic and have been uh, since very early on. Of course, uh, you are most well known for being a co-author with our colleagues and friends, Martin Kaldorf and Sinatra Gupta on the Great Barrington Declaration, which of course is one of the most important documents that was written in this entire COVID fiasco, uh, which really codified uh, something that was very important, which is of course, focus protection, targeting the protection uh, so that we stop people from dying who have a risk to die and ending the destructive lockdowns. And I I think that was so important, uh, not just to put it in writing, but to, uh, as you know, help other people say, yes, I agree with that. There is something I'm going to sign on to that. And of course, that that was massively important. And I think there's a lot of uh, gratitude for for having done that. Um, but I don't want to talk about the Great Barrington Declaration in this uh, because uh, I sort of want to focus on how we move forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, we must ensure this never happens again, as all the data has come out uh, validating everything that was known in spring, summer of 2020, but even more so now that the lockdowns failed and the school closures were so harmful. Uh, But there's bigger issues in society, uh, including the loss of trust in the institutions we need. So uh, I'd like to start with talking about sort of the role of universities and let the listeners understand something that they really don't know, I don't think, that much about uh, your personal experience with censorship, with uh, harassment uh, on our own university campus uh, that isn't so much in the public eye. I think that's very important. And before I let you talk, uh, because our universities are granted privileged position in our society. And that is based upon trust. They're used as the sources for the media experts. They're used as the public source of expertise. They're appointed by the government. They're the funders of research. And most importantly, they are the role models for our next generation of leaders, for our children. So uh, with that long-winded introduction, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, what you think the role of universities are, but also put it into context with some of your specific experience at Stanford. 
Thank you, Scott. Uh, so I agree with you about the importance of universities. I've devoted my life to a, a, to a specific university. I've been at Stanford for 36 years now. Um, I, I have to say that during the pandemic, uh, the, 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 the way that Stanford behaved, I think, shook me to my core. Uh, I had been for 34 years, uh, you know, I'm a full professor at Stanford. I was a student here at Stanford um, for, well, I'm doing my PhD. I had been under the impression and actually the, the reality of a very free environment. I'd written things that were sometimes controversial, but I'd never fa faced a situation where I thought Stanford was, was undermining me. Quite the contrary, Stanford provided me a, a, an environment where I could disagree with people or agree with people, collaborate with people, and it was, it was, it was, you know, the, what the motto of the university is let the winds of freedom blow in, in German, which I can't speak, but that, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, but during the pandemic, I think Stanford essentially, uh, in effect, de facto repudiated its commitment to academic freedom. It made the place a hostile work environment. I know you've experienced this firsthand, uh, Scott, but I also have experienced this firsthand. Uh, it became a hostile work environment for anyone who disagreed with uh, with with the 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 the, um, the administration of the university or with some very powerful other professors inside the university. They created a situation where um, free exchange of of ideas, even disagreement, was impossible without personal slander, without personal uh, without with essentially the politics of personal destruction coming to professors and scientists who had different ideas. It, it, didn't it became a place not of, of, of scientific uh, progress, but of, of scientific stifling. Um, and uh, right. I'll, I'll, maybe we can talk just a bit about, about this. I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop, um, I'll stop uh, uh, you know, monopolizing the conversation, but there was a lot of specific details I can go into about what, what Stanford administration and also faculty did to make uh, the, this a sad situation about where Stanford is no longer yes. a place where the winds of freedom blow. Well, you did one of the most pivotal studies on the science research side in the pandemic early on in April on uh, basically showing uh, the far more widespread uh, infection that changes, actually, the, the infection fatality rate calculation. And th this was really critical because, as we know, in these respiratory viruses, Typically, a large number of people are infected that are asymptomatic or not sick enough to go to a doctor, and, and that's what your study showed was, was really the, the first, if not the first, one of the first studies, the so-called seroprevalence study. And uh, the details of the study aren't as important as the reaction to the study. This was pure research at a, res at a major research medical school. Tell the tell the listeners how that what what happened when you when you published that study. Yeah, so uh, this is back in April of 2020. Yeah, this is this is April of 2020. The, the study was motivated by this idea that this is a very highly infectious virus that is quite likely that there are many people who've been infected that that and had recovered and then never come to the attention of the of the of the public health because there really wasn't so much testing going on and uh, people weren't so primed to to attribute every single um, uh, symptom to COVID back then. Um, and so what the idea was that we would measure in the population at large the uh, presence of antibodies. If you have an antibody to COVID, we can debate about how protective it is against, um, you know, against future infection. Actually, it's quite, quite protective, but, but the key thing is not that. The key thing is it's evidence that you've been infected and recovered if you have these antibodies. Exactly. 
Um, and so we uh, we did this study uh, in early April 2020 where we measured in Santa Clara County, which is the, the the county where Stanford is, the the fraction of the population that had 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 COVID and recovered. Um, now there was some scientific controversy over the study, which which I can talk about. I think we you know, the study eventually was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. I think we did good science. Science has been replicated over and over again by dozens of other studies. Um, Including another study we ran in April of in April mid April 2020 in LA County, which found very, basically the same result. Um, uh, but uh, the, the the you asked me about what the reaction was on campus, right? Um, now on campus, I have to say it was I was absolutely shocked by it. What happened was from the even before we had uh, collected any data or or told or, or or written the paper about about the study. Um, the the administration of the medical school set up an ad hoc committee. I, I call it the I called it their star chamber, to oversee the study, completely separate from the normal process of overseeing a study, which is normally undertaken by something called an institutional review board or a human subjects board. Um, when you run human subjects research, you it's appropriate for the re, for the uh, university to oversee the study. But we worked very closely with them to set up protocols to protect the rights of the people that participate in the study. Mainly, we had to do a blood draw where people give us a little finger stick of their blood. Um, but, you know, you want to protect that. There's very low risk study. But on the, at the same time, it was in the middle of a pandemic. You had to set up protocols so we can collect it safe, relatively safely during a pandemic. Um, all of that were hashed out with the Human Subjects Committee. Separate from that, Stanford set up a, a process, the medical school set up a process where they put people who um, essentially had deep conflicts of interest to oversee the study. Uh, for instance, there was somebody on this, on this, on this, board, this ad hoc board that, uh, that was going for another uh, huge grant, a $13 million grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation for, to run a seroprevalence study, one that actually they... they right, and just to... Just if I can just interject something here, I mean, I, I too have done, you know, in my 14 years of being a professor at the medical school here at Stanford before the last decade where I've been full-time health policy, I too had done many uh, protocols that had to go through the standard institutional review board, IRB, and of course the human subjects committee to make sure that ethical principles were adhered to. This is standard, but this, what happened to your study, I've never heard of myself. Perhaps it's been done in other times, but I think this is extraordinary what they did to assign an, a specific overview that, again, had, of course, conflict of interest, but even the requirement that there was this form uh, is shocking to me. Yeah, and, and there, were, there were other people on this, on this board, uh, including some uh, a pathologist who was trying to develop his own antibody test apparatus called ELISA, um, which he wanted to sell commercially. Um, and so do you, do you think that the motivation for forming that committee or the, adding those people was financial. Uh, I mean, I, I just uh, I think it's that's sort of low hanging fruit as a as a as a form of corruption, as we all know. But I, I actually my tendency is to think that it's more complicated than that. I, th I think it's partly financial, but, but primarily it was an attempt to try to protect Stanford's brand. Like, what are we going to find? What if we find something that's controversial that makes people think Stanford is is not doing the right thing? So partly it was like they wanted to over they they wanted more oversight over. The, the the scientific my scientific activities, 
um, which is actually not completely inappropriate. It's completely inappropriate, right? I'm a full professor. I get to do my scientific activities without that kind of oversight. That's what academic freedom is. Absolutely. Um, That's the whole point of, uh, of a university, frankly. I mean, if our universities are afraid of what might be found in research, I think that that is past the point of of uh, of incompetence or anything like that. I mean, this is really a frightening era if if that is the guide to what should be explored. I mean, I, I don't even think this stuff needs to be said, but it's so shocking that we keep saying it. Yeah, I mean, it's, and there was also like professional jealousy, I think, at part, at partly, I mean, you know, like, like I said, there was somebody else who want, wanted to run a big seroprevalence study and it gotten a, it was on the verge of getting a huge grant to do it. Uh, actually, I don't think she ever ended up doing it. Um, uh, actually, right. running it. But what happened though later after the the committee was formed and the oversight was formed? But then the data started coming. Yeah. Out. So so there was a couple of things. So one, this this person who wanted to develop his own uh, antibody test kit was absolutely convinced the kit we were using was inaccurate, and the committee forced us to go back and retest everyone who was positive. Uh, using this other person's test kit instead of ours in order to check the validity of our test kit, even though we had thousands of independent samples checking the validity of our test kit. he Again, this is completely inappropriate for them to weigh in on that kind of methodologic error as a, as a university or as a committee. That kind of methodology is normally flawed or not flawed on the basis of what the reviewers of the papers say. I mean, this is the process of a scientific publication for our for our listeners here, is that you submit your 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 paper that you've written with your detailed methods section, and the reviewers who are experts in the field in theory are the ones who decide. Okay, this is flawed methodology. It's not worthy of publication. It's not part of the university's role to start micro. Uh, it really intruding into a scientific experiment. I mean, this was even worse, Scott. What they did is they made us. Re- so we had 50 positive samples. They forced us to bring all those 50 people back in, change the IRB protocol, uh, and then what they did is then then retested them. They found on that other testing platform, they found a, 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 a thir- 35 of those 50 were positive on both platforms. 15 were not at positive on their platform, positive on ours. I don't know. What, let, let's say that all of our 15 were false positives. There were 3,000 people we, we sampled. So the, the false positive rate was 0.5% according to their own test that they forced us to redo. Um, they initially made an error and said, look... Uh, Which is a very low false yeah, positive that, that's rate. That's exactly the false positive rate we thought we had uh, from the manufacturer's test and on other independent tests. It was exactly the calculation that we used. Uh, it, was false. it was actually confirmation, independent confirmation that we were using the correct false positive rate. Um, when the 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 the, the, uh, the the person that redid this test that was on this ad hoc committee, he when he he first initially did the miscalculation wrong. He said, "Oh, look, you have 15 out of 50 wrong uh, false positives." No, it's 15 out of 3,000 false positives. Um, and so when he found out that he'd made that calculation wrong, he rescinded the the permission to read to publicly tell people about this. And the Stanford. Uh, uh, administration agreed with him. So if this is the first time I've actually talked about this publicly. Um, and he, uh, the, the other thing, they, they, they ordered me, it was a lot of media attention around this study. 
Um, and I felt an obligation, an ethical obligation, to tell the world about this result. It's a very important result. We found that uh, that that the, the mortality rate from COVID was something like uh, in the community, not in, in nursing homes. In, in the community, it was like 0.2%, 99.8% survival. This enormous age gradient in mortality, so that older people had a thousand times more or more uh, higher risk of dying than young people um, from, from COVID infection. Uh, and this is massively uh, lower than what the World Health Organization and sort of the, the TV talking heads had been uh, talking about this yeah. this infection fatality. Here we have it's, it's still it's still a, it's still a lethal disease. We want to make sure people understand. We're not no one's minimizing that people died from COVID here, but there's a there's a medical perspective uh, that is important to understand, both for guiding public policy, but also for telling people, you know, the the level of fear that was already in the public was really out of control, and so facts are the way you limit fear, the actual data. And that's why it's so important to seek truth in science like you did. I mean, that's, and it, you know, you're absolutely right. We weren't minimizing it. In fact, what we found was that older people were at a very, very high risk from dying from COVID. And so it, what, it, what the implication of the study was is let's protect older people from this deadly right. disease. Um, the other thing that, that so, so we, we uh, the other thing was like, you have th three or 4% of the population in Santa Clara County um, and, and LA County having this disease, having antibodies, that means it's already too late to get to zero. This disease is out of the barn. You're not, these lockdowns are not, never going to work to stop this disease from stop. At best, they, they delay it. Um, exactly. This is a, a, a very important point to emphasize here, if, if I may, which is that by the time the spring of 2020 rolled around here, this virus was widespread. The idea that you can lockdown and stop it is, of course, absurd at that point in time. But it's also uh, important to put in things like what is the role of contact tracing for testing? Uh, I mean, there's so many implications of this study that were so important. And yet it was not only uh, sort of an attempt to censor it, but there were there were also, I think, uh, unheard of investigations inside Stanford of of you and the of your co-authors. Yeah, so, so that, 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 that comes just a little bit later in the story. So um, we what, one of the things, by the way, this group did uh, the 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 uh, I got a d direct demand and a direct order for me not to appear in in public on on TV or on in media talking about the study from the Stanford. I mean, I, I'm a full professor. They don't have the right to do that if they if respect academic. Exactly. Um, so I, you know, it was it was it was actually quite shocking for me. I mean, I'm, I'm these were fr friends of mine, colleagues of mine that that I, that I respected at one point uh, in time, and I was and they're they're they essentially violated the basic norms of academic freedom that with the rules that I thought nor normally would pertain, uh, because they thought they knew better than than the scientific results that we were getting. And this is a paper that was was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology, one of the top journals in epidemiology. Um, we published the, the, the LA County study, which was a very sister study we did a week after the Santa Clara study, uh, run out of USC instead of out of Stanford without any of the grief in the Journal of American Medical Association uh, in May of 2020, just one month later. Um, this These studies received scientific validation through normal processes, peer review processes, and yet Stanford acted in ways to try to suppress the study, make it difficult for me to conduct the study and, and difficult for me to report the results in a, in a, in a fair way. Um, the study itself resulted in tr a tremendous, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of attention to it. 
um, some scientists who helped improve the study. Many scientists who, who gave their own their work to help, you know, for instance, to understand how how low the or what what uh, how how low the false positive rate was for the for the test kit we're using and so on. I mean, there was a lot of you know quite use, useful help, but also a lot of nasty attacks. For whatever reason, people thought that the study was was trying to was was a political study as opposed to just a purely scientific study. Scott, I was motivated to try to get a number. I had no idea what the number was going to be, what fraction of the population had had COVID. That was just a number that I didn't know that I thought was quite important for policy, as you've said. Um, and Right. I mean, there, there, this is pure science. I mean, there, there is nothing political about it. I, And, you know, we could talk about this, but I sort of, I've come to realize that people who uh, see everything through a political lens, they they tend to accuse those of us like you and me who were doing things for for the motivation that uh, finding research and stopping people from dying, frankly, they accuse us of being political, which I think is more uh, revealing about themselves. But th this is my own uh, sort of uh, personal opinion on things. But go ahead. Yeah. So um, I, I started getting these like crazy attacks. Like there was the, the Nation magazine, which I guess is some left wing magazine wrote this hit piece saying that we were we were Stanford has undermined science because we did this piece. I worked with this uh, this very prominent scientist Johnny Anides, who's probably I think he's the most, high, most highly cited scientist in the world. You're you're, you're an my common friend, um, truly a genius. Um, and you know he he uh, uh, he he helped a lot with the study, but it, it, but the, but the attacks on him were even nastier than the ones on me. There was a there was a reporter uh, for BuzzFeed. Uh, who wrote nasty hit piece after nasty hit piece about me bringing dragging my family into this into the into like into into the spotlight uh, going after my wife because she wrote an email trying to like tell her friends about about the study um uh she they they she wrote a piece where there was $5000 that the JetBlue founder the you know the airline founder He'd given five thousand dollars. The whole study cost like I think a hundred thousand dollars, something on that order. Um, he gave five thousand dollars to Stanford, not to me or to, to Johnny Anides. He gave five thousand dollars to support the study after the study had been already been written. And she wrote this piece insinuating that somehow that we had changed the results of the study, or there's some conflict of interest because Stanford got five thousand dollars for the study from the JetBlue founder. I have no right. idea what and theory I, that would like. Right. I think you're you're illustrating something here that I think is important for the public to know, which is that the role of the media <clears throat> is, is extremely important here because the media is really the interface between science and the public. I mean, this people, regular people don't have the time, uh, the interest, or, or perhaps the knowledge to read the scientific journals, of course. So the, the media is the interface and the media is supposed to, in my view, report uh, in interpretable ways to the public on what happened. They're not supposed to block or uh, censure or censor uh, or persuade about this sort of research. They're supposed to report the research. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all used to uh, presenting papers in journals and presenting papers at meetings and presenting papers in uh, national symposia and getting critical appraisal on the spot from people who have knowledge. That's fine. That's science. Science is the debate. But to block the debate and to, to smear people who actually are presenting data 
it is a really unprecedented in my lifetime. Well, it was, it was a false allegation of, of conflicts of interest in order to like essentially to make the study controversial. And so, so that it, right. it really and to delegitimize to delegitimize the study. Yeah, really. I mean, that was the purpose of it. And, it's, and unfortunately, it succeeded. Stanford, which knew better, which knew that the $5,000 from JetBlue founder went to Stanford, not to me, um, or to John Unides, opened an investigation of me. Uh, now, they didn't, they, originally, they called it a whistleblower investigation. When I asked, like, what was the whistleblower complaint, they backed down and said, oh, no, it's no there's no investigation. It's just a fact-finding mission. Uh, I mean, I was so nervous uh, and ang anxious over this. I'm a faculty member in good standing for two decades, full professor. I've never had anything like this happen to me my entire life. I, I was, uh, and, and I had like the hit pieces on me. I was getting death threats. People, like other other faculty members were like trying to defriend me on Facebook, which is the most juvenile thing I can imagine. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, <laughs> I, and so I was like, okay, but I like I was filled with anxiety around this because like I couldn't protect my family because my you know my wife was and I, and my job is threatened. I thought by this investigation, um, and so I, I it was it was a really rough time. Eventually, they concluded that I that there was no conflict of interest that that, that all of that was just nonsense. But they still Stanford to this day won't release publicly um, that fact that they found nothing as a result of that. Right. That, uh, that that in fact the study well, was that, that's the beauty that's the beauty of doing. Uh podcast like this because we're not censoring information here. Uh, and, I, and I thank you for, for even talking about this because I think we, we have all, you know, particularly uh, the two of us really, uh, but others too, including John Ioannidis uh, at Stanford and many others throughout the country and the world really have experienced a, a shocking level of personal uh, attack and when it is done through or on the ba uh, by the university, the problem is that it gives credibility to these unfounded charges. It it, it is it is used uh, as the basis of of really irrational uh, and uh, and really dangerous uh, accusatory uh, you know incidents. And the social media side of this, of course, has inflamed everything. Before we finish, Jay, I, I, I would like to talk about sort of what your thoughts are uh, on how we can, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, how do we fix this? Partly, how do we fix universities? Because again, as I mentioned in the beginning, and I think as we both know, the universities are so critical in what they serve the public for, what they're supposed to serve the public for. But also, again, they are role models for our younger generation, for our kids. Our kids are learning that character smears, character assassination, in, in uh, investigations and censorship and censure is normal. And this is the behavior that's accepted by uh, and taught by their professors. That, that's a horrible thought. How do we fix this? And also, how do we, what do we do here to restore ethics into science and public health, take the politics out and never let this happen again? Well, These are big questions, yeah, of course. I, there's no there's no silver bullet. Yeah, I don't, there isn't a silver bullet. I mean, I think, I think um, the research enterprise, the scientific enterprise d relies on trust. It relies on good, on assumptions of good faith, uh, you know, checked, of course, whether it's not, not entirely unregulated. But uh, this this idea that, uh, that that we respect each other, even as we disagree, um, that we that we that we act in good faith toward one another is fundamental to the scientific enterprise. 
Um, and, and that kind of expectation is set by leadership, by scientific leadership. When scientific leadership essentially uh, sets an environment where hostility toward other, other, other colleagues is normal, is normalized, uh, is, 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 is in fact encouraged, which is, I think, what happened during the pandemic against you, against me, against anyone who decided that, 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 the, that the data weren't pointing in the direction of lockdowns, um, that, that really sets a bad precedent. And the only way around that is, is, to re- is, to, is for leadership to emphasize over and over again the necessity for good faith interactions against people, among people who disagree. Um, you know, so for instance, one thing that university leadership could have done and still hasn't done is uh, put put a a panel get together, a COVID science panel. They could have done that early in the pandemic, where people who disagreed with each other, prominent people, could have been featured, so that their ideas could have been put put forward with the imprimatur of the university, saying, "Look, this is the the range of 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 scientific thinking at the university about COVID." Instead, yeah. I'm a little concerned though about that, uh, and I and I think it's true that it should have been done early on, but at this point. I think the trust has been lost. I don't personally trust the university to put together a panel, okay, because there's been a denial of fact. There's not just a a sort of a a limitation of speech. And also there's been a lot of personal attack here that I I think uh, we need more than just a panel at this point. I think at this point we need a public apology and a public admission that they lockdowners were wrong, a public admission that the censorship happened and should never happen again. I, I just think it's, uh, I- I'm a little bit less uh, trusting, of course, than I used to be. Uh, and I think that's that's necessary at this point. Well, I, Scott, I don't, I don't disagree that now it's, so much has happened that it's difficult to imagine that's just simple panel. I mean, I was talking about like earlier. What imagine? Sure, of that, course, I, I agree with like you. Yeah, in in June of 2020, that the that the university had organized a panel around this. This is before you went to the White House. This is before uh, the, you know, right in the middle of this ma- major firestorm over mm-hmm. the paper we'd written. I, I'd written, we talked about uh, that would have been that would have been really really clarifying, and it would have sent a message to the university community and also to the world at large that this kind of conversation is what's what normally should happen when you have a policy issue like this. It's a huge failure on the part of university leadership not to organize such a thing. Um, huge and- failure. I think this is this is really uh, something that should be really emphasized. We need people in leadership positions to be leaders. Okay, that we have more than 60 university presidents in the United States who make over a million dollars a year. And virtually none of those 60 spoke out when it was obvious that their leadership was needed. And individuals, you know, I hate to say this, uh, and I understand the fear and all that, and I think we both understand that quite a bit, but, you know, we need individuals to rise up. And what do I mean by rise up? Rise up means speak up. Rise up means make your voice heard. That's not just what you're allowed to do. It's an expectation in a free society. You need to have more, the good people must step forward because if good people don't step forward, well, then who's left? Uh, And so I I just think uh, there's a lot of burden on the courageous people who are out there to come forward, speak up, 
And by their leadership, by their courage, others are empowered. Others are emboldened because I actually believe most people agree with all the things that we're saying. It's just that they were afraid to say it. And and this is an example of how that smearing, that character assassination, that cancel culture is very successful. It causes self-cancellation. Well, I think what happened is a consequence of not and paneling these kinds of discussions and debates, free discussions where we people even vehemently disagree with each other, is it created this environment where it was okay to, to smear people who disagreed. That letter that our colleagues circulated about you, Scott, came out of this decision by Stanford leadership to not empanel that kind of discussion. It, they, they essentially they created this environment where this kind of like uh, innuendo and smearing and public petitions to, to, to destroy reputations was normal, good, okay. Um, the same thing happened to me later in the pandemic. Uh, a whole bunch of faculty circulated a secret petition trying to silence me from saying facts like uh, look, there are no randomized studies that assess whether masks work in children. I said that. It's an absolute true thing. I said that in the context of a of a, of a panel where, you know, you were there actually with, with Governor DeSantis. And as a result, the, the faculty members circulated a secret petition asking the, the president of the university to censor me. Um, why is that okay? Like, and this was circulated by the, the chair of epidemiology, essentially with official imprimatur. That the environment that the Stanford leadership created destroyed the capacity for science to actually happen openly and clearly. Uh, this shouldn't require courage to say what your mind, what your hypothesis is. That should be that's part of the minimum expectation of being a scientist. Um, whether the hypothesis is right or wrong is another thing, and you can do tests and you can do discussions. But that environment of open discussion, open open ideas being floated around, um, where it's where it's comfortable to do that. That's a that's a decision by leadership to create such an environment, and leadership decided against that. In fact, it wanted to create an environment where. You know, like an environment essentially like like Tony Fauci's model of what science is. Tony Fauci's model of what science is is um, uh, he says if you criticize me, you're not simply criticizing a man; you're criticizing science itself. Well, the science can't operate in that kind of environment. Science requires respect for other people who disagree with you, and uh, and there's no infallible authority inside science. Science comes out of that discussion, and leadership has as its obligation to make that environment possible. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, let's let's end it here. Uh, and I hope to have you back and we can explore uh, in more detail some of the solutions, including what we're both involved with, which is uh, Hillsdale College's new Academy for Science and Freedom we, we, with our colleague and friend Martin Kulldorff. We, we know this is a, quite a challenge to fix science. Science is broken. Uh, and uh, for a variety of ways, uh, we, we need to fix it because we, we cannot have a, a society, really, that does not have the free exchange of ideas or we will never solve these important crises in the future. So, Jay Bhattacharya, thanks again for, uh, for coming. Uh, it's great talking to you, and uh, thanks for really everything you did during the pandemic. Thank you, Scott. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about Dr. Bhattacharya, follow him on Twitter as at Dr. J. Bhattacharya. That's at D-R-J-B-H-A-T-T. 
A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. And don't forget to subscribe to Independent Truths on YouTube, as well as on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.